Thank you for that blessing. Thank you, Pastor Henji. And uh, thank you for those that have joined your voices and prayers in that blessing. Uh, my wife and family and I are deeply blessed. Uh, and we are particularly deeply blessed by the extraordinary partnership of pastors among us, uh, including Pastor Henji and the entire pastoral team here at PCF. And uh, we certainly want to lift up and honor them uh, in this week of, uh, or excuse me, this month of pastors' appreciation. And uh, all those out there that are pastoring, if you're uh, hearing this message or it's reaching you, or maybe you're a member of another church, um, but you're, you're listening to this message uh, at another time as a part of your personal devotion, and it's a reminder to you to share your gratitude with your pastor. Or if you're part of a particular ministry or outreach group that has a, has a shepherd over it that uh, helps to direct and guide that ministry, uh, be sure to, to share your gratitude with that one. Pray for them and uh, express your appreciation to them. I'm sure they don't do everything perfectly like I do. Uh, don't you wish that everybody could do it as perfectly as I do? Well, I, uh, I'll let you in on a little secret that's not a secret at all. I don't do it perfectly. Not only do I not do everything perfectly, but I don't do anything perfectly. And I'm sure that those that you partner with and those that are pastoring you in particular areas of your life are like that as well. But you know what? They're worthy of honor. The word of the Lord says uh, that we are to give honor where it's due. And those that are serving in that capacity, they will appreciate uh, your expressions of gratitude to them. I know because I appreciate your expressions of gratitude to me. I have experienced uh, such generosity from so many of you in so many ways, uh, particularly in these past days with my birthday and my daughter's birthday on her behalf, on Meg's behalf. I want to say thank you for the many gifts and outpourings of love that we've received as a family. And uh, of course, for your prayer always, and especially in this season, it's much appreciated. Uh, and I want you to know that we are praying for you. I miss having everybody together in this room. I really do miss that. I was thinking that again today because the atmosphere of worship and praise in this room was so precious. And I trust that the Spirit of the Lord communicated that to you where you were. And as you engaged in worship, just a reminder, even if you're at home or you are uh, in a break room at work or somewhere where you're able to stream this live or watch a recording later, and it's not a normal place that you would think of for lifting up worship, remember, this is a great opportunity in these days to remember the normal place for worship is every place. Every place is a place for worship. So as you engage and invest in, in the worship that we are uh, uh, raising up during these services, I believe the Lord will raise you up also with encouragement, with resource, and there will be a sense of connection. Always connected together, always and always connected. Pastor Henry is going to be uh, bringing a message next Sunday during our main service out of Acts chapter 1 on that very notion of unity and connection, which we find in the early church. But I have to say, all of that being said, there's nothing quite like being all in one room together. In fact, in the early church, on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, we are told that that's precisely the arrangement at which the Holy Spirit descended upon them, that they were all together in one place, in one accord. I miss having that opportunity, but I want to remind you, even as Pastor Henji mentioned just a moment ago, we are having in-person services here. We had one again today at 8.30 a.m., and you know what? There is room for you. It is a limited number. We are doing physical distancing. You do got to wear one of these puppies. You got to have some sort of mask. We will take your temperature. Uh, we are diligent to do everything that we can to observe the proper protocols, but it's wonderful to be together 
in one place. And so you're invited. Next Sunday morning, once again, at 8.30 a.m., from 8.30 to 9.30, we have a service. It includes this sermon uh, in an abbreviated form. You might think that's worth coming for. So, um, and of course, it doesn't preclude your participation online at 10 a.m. as well, or watching this at a later date in the recording. But we'd love to see your face, even behind a mask, on one of those days. We also have our Tagalog service on Saturday mornings at 9 a.m. Also, likewise, same scenario on the patio. So come and join us sometime and uh, be present again with the people if you can. Uh, for some of you, that may be difficult to do or you may be in a high-risk category where you have concerns, and I respect that, although I also want to say that these are days in which um, we have to evaluate carefully the right choices to make, but we don't want to neglect anything that would either allow the Lord to reach us in a more um, resourcing way or satisfy the Lord in terms of his particular goal. In other words, pray. Don't make your decision based on fear. Don't make your decision based on, on anxiety in either direction. I'm afraid of going and being exposed to people or I'm so anxious that I've got to be with people. Neither of those is necessarily the right motivator, although both of them is utterly understandable, right? When we are making decisions about what we will do, how we will live, how we will invest our lives and the time that we have, we want to pray and ask the Lord, what should I do today? How should I behave today? What is my mandate and charge today? We know that the word of the Lord says, don't forsake assembling together, but we also recognize that this online assembly is a church service. It is assembling together. But it may be that the Lord would prompt you to come be in person with us uh, on some Sunday. And I know I'll be delighted to see you. So please come. Maybe you're a guest and you're looking for a place to worship. You're new to town or you have uh, not been connected to a church body and you're here in the LA area. Come and visit us. Even just as a, as a one-time thing to check it out. We would love to see you and you can introduce yourself to me. Please do. Yes, in all these things, we want to pray with the election. Don't just vote according to what you think, although... I assume that you have thoughts, and I'm sure that you take your thoughts seriously. And I, I expect, if you're a member of the body of Christ, that you're doing that in a prayerful way, in a biblical way, in a conscientious way that considers the values and morals and, and dictates of life in Christ with grace and with integrity. But ask the Lord. Don't presume that you necessarily know. And I don't just mean in the presidential race. I mean, in every issue that you're voting on, for whatever position that you may be voting people into, for whatever policy or proposal is, is on your particular ballot in your city, in this state, wherever you may be, pray and ask the Lord to give you guidance. And he will. And then you can vote in good conscience. It doesn't mean that every vote that you make is perfect. Just like I said earlier, it doesn't mean that everything we do is perfect. It means everything we do is given over to the one who is perfect. And through his will, he perfects those things which we give to him. We had a message last week that was basically on that topic. You'll remember that I preached out of Luke chapter 19 as we were talking about the tabernacle festival. And uh, that might not seem to be an immediate connection, but I'm taking two passages in Luke in this two-part series, and today is the second half of it, and looking at words of Jesus, but relating them also to this present moment in which we celebrate uh, a harvest time, a harvest season. And in Israel, that means the, the fall feasts, including the pinnacle feast, the, the last of the fall feasts, uh, essentially, 
you could consider Hanukkah, I guess, something of a fall feast, but it's not actually one of the original ones. It, it was an event that came later, and I won't take time to talk about that now. In the traditional calendar of Israel, uh, out of the books of Moses, the Feast of Tabernacles was the, the summit of the agricultural year and the conclusion of the fall feasts and the culmination of the harvest. So we're in the midst of celebrating that, but I'm looking at two passages in the life of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, out of the book of Luke, that come at essentially the culmination of his earthly ministry. Right before his final days, uh, we have a couple of teachings that we've been looking at. Last week, Luke 19, and the parable of the minas, which is a currency of money. You may be more familiar with it from the version that is given of it, basically the same story, um, probably told at a slightly different time, in the book of Matthew, which is known as the parable of the talents, also an ancient currency of money. Both of the parables have to do with a master giving resource to his servants and saying, I'm going to go away. I'm going to receive a kingdom. I'm getting an appointment from a far land and I'm going to be gone for quite some time. So I'm giving you this resource in order for you to invest it. And that brings it around to what I'm saying. Everything of our lives is that resource. Take a breath. That came from God. You're breathing the breath of God. The scripture says that when we were made, we were just made of the earth. We were just made of clay. The very name Adam, Adam, means basically earthling. This, this creature of clay is Adam. The red, ruddy earth formed into a being, a being made in the image of God and graced with the breath of God. In Hebrew, the word breath and spirit are the same. We were literally inspired with life by the breath of God. And you and I continue to live by his grace. In him we live and move and have our being, it says in the book of Acts. That is a resource from God, a gift. And the parable of the talents, the message of the minas, is that the master is coming back and will call us to account for what we've done with what he's given us. So we want to pray. In fact, I want to ask you to pray with me right now. Not only the scripture over the scriptures that we are going to be reading together and the word of the Lord that we are going to be learning together, receiving together, but also about the situation of our world. I have an app on my phone that alerts me when there are incidents, um, crimes, violence, fires, things like that in the vicinity of the neighborhood. I have it set so that not only will it alert me to whatever is in my immediate locality where I, wherever I am, based on the GPS, but that it's always centered here. Home is where the heart is, they say. So my heart is here at this building of PCF, not because this building is so precious to me out of some greedy sense of, of uh, wanting to retain and hold on to a physical dwelling but because this building reminds me of the grace of God. This building was given by the grace of God. This building belongs to God, but this building is important not really for the building, but for who lives in it, God and us. And I care about this building also because of the neighborhood that it's in and who lives in it, the people around us, our neighbors, and the God who loves them, and the city in which it's found, and the God that loves it and calls out to it even in all of its wayward ways, our wayward ways. So I have my alert set to let me know when things are happening here so I can pray 
and respond as well in case there is something I can do to help or action I need to take as a point of responsibility. And what I've noticed in recent days, maybe you've noticed this too in recent weeks, is there's a lot more incidents coming through all the time. And when I'm here, I often hear them. I hear angry voices. I hear gunshots. I hear the squeal of tires. Sometimes I see smoke, sometimes I smell fires. Now, I don't mean to say that things are bleaker than they are, but I do feel there's a call to pray. Because in all of that, what I hear is also the voice of the Lord saying, pray, pray. Don't just yield to a worsening situation. Don't just presume that there's nothing that you can do. Don't act as though you have no place or part to play in bringing about a redemptive work through prayer. Not because we have any great capability on our own, but because we have the resource of God given to us. And that resource is his spirit. That resource is his word. That resource is his name. Jesus said, if you will pray anything in my name, it'll be done. Jesus said that where there's agreement in the body, there's agreement in heaven. So let's pray together now. Let's pray over this election. Let's pray once again against the spread of COVID and the end of this pandemic. Let's pray for financial uh, renewal and restoration in our nation and around the world. Let's pray for safety in our streets. Let's pray for peace in the homes. Let's pray for justice in the land. Let's pray for revival. Let's pray. Wherever you are, if you can, maybe take a knee or bow your head, close your eyes, but don't check out. Tune in and press in to heaven. Lord, we come to you because you are the God of all the earth. We come to you because you are the God of all creation. We come to you because you call us and invite us. We come to you because we can. You receive us and accept us. We come with repentance, Lord, because we are aware that we often fail. We sometimes are not just the observers of violence, but even potentially the actors of it. You have said that even if we have a piece of hatred in our heart, a moment of rage within, that itself is a sin. And who among us has not felt that? We struggle and grapple with temptations, and sometimes we yield to them. We regret it, Lord. We regret any way that we cause harm or hurt to others. We ask, Lord, that you would not only forgive us, but call to our attention anyone that we need to ask forgiveness of so that we would go to them right away, even today, and ask their forgiveness. Even if it's hard, we know that you'll give us the strength to do it. If there's anyone we are harboring ill feelings against today, Lord, we let go of that. It may be really hard. We may even feel like our hand in the spirit is so clenched around that thing, that wrong done to us, or so clenched around the wound that it left that we can't, we can't let it go. We can't loose our fingers. Lord, supernaturally right now, by your grace, would you enable those who are willing to receive the spirit of forgiveness to forgive those who have done wrong from them? Friend, if that's you, just let the Lord do a work in you right now. Say, I forgive so-and-so. If you can say it out loud, say it. Say the name. You may think, oh, they're, they're dead and gone. Forgive them anyway. Why are you holding on to it then? You may say, that's it. I'm done with them. I'm never going to see them again. Well, that's your choice. But remember, it's a choice you're going to have to bring to the Lord. 
Is it what he would have you do? It may be, but in any case, I can assure you, he would have you forgive them. You may think there's no reason to forgive. It's not reasonable to forgive. What they did was wrong. Saying I forgive does not mean it wasn't wrong. God forgave you. Does that mean that he says sin is not sin? Far be it from God to ever do such a thing. Good would have to become evil for God to say that sin is not sin. He does not say that your sin is not sin. He says it is forgiven. And it is that grace that you can offer to another. It doesn't mean that they didn't do wrong against you. It means you don't hold that against them. Only God can grant that kind of grace, but he does. Lord, we ask that you would enable us to live according to your spirit of grace and love. And so in that attitude, Lord, with repentance for our own sins and interceding on behalf of the land and the people around us and the sins which they may not be inclined to raise up to you, but which we do and we say, Lord, forgive us, forgive us for prejudice and injustice, forgive us for murder and bloodshed, for the taking of life, whether on the street or in the womb. Lord, forgive us for sexual immorality. Forgive us for sexual confusion. Forgive us, Lord, for the abuse and the damage that we have done to marriage and in marriage and outside of marriage. Lord, forgive us for the abandonment of the weak, the poor, the needy. Lord, forgive us for the abandonment of truth and justice and integrity. Lord, forgive us as a people for the erosion of character and the evaporation of principles. Lord, forgive us for the casual profanity of our society, which curses right and left everywhere these days, on the street, in the store, even on the television and in print, without a second thought to the, to the damage of such dark words that reflect dark hearts and darkened lives. Lord, forgive us for the ways in which we've given ourselves over to idolatry, worshiping other things, chasing after money, sex, power, political leverage. Even, Lord, chasing after our social agendas above you, as right or righteous as we may feel our agenda is, if you're not leading it, we repent of it because it's become an idol in our lives. Tear down those idols, Lord. And with our idle time, may we not be swept up in the social media syndrome of our day, brainwashed into ideological patterns of such aggressive division and obstinacy, dogmatically dividing over doctrinaire devices and, and disputes. Lord, we repent of looking at others as inferior and less than than us. Lord, we repent of putting ourselves first. Lord, we repent of neglecting your word or neglecting prayer or neglecting your name. Lord, we repent of ways in which we've, we've stepped back from sharing boldly about you, if that has been our pattern. Give us the strength and the grace to share your truth in love with everyone around us and to be a witness in your world. 
We pray, Lord, that this neighborhood of PCF would be guarded by angels. We call upon you, Lord, to send angelic guard. Jesus Christ, our Savior, Lord, you yourself have said that you had at your access angels you could call upon in prayer, and yet you would never deem to do so if it ran contrary to the will of the Lord. So we recognize in this the truth that angels are at the ready to respond to prayer. But the prayer that we lift up is, Lord, let your will be done. We believe that you desire there'd be revival in this land. We pray that you would send angelic hosts to help that. And we pray that you would strengthen us and give us boldness and courage to be the witnesses that would bring that about. We pray that you would send workers into this great harvest field. We pray that you would send angelic hosts who protect the streets and protect those who protect the streets, the men and women of law enforcement, Lord, that would watch over them and watch them. And we pray, Lord, also for the people who live on the streets and the people who live in the homes along the streets, that there would be angelic covering there as well, Lord. We pray against violence. We pray that evildoers would be brought to justice. We pray against injustice. We pray that wrongs would be righted and systems, Lord, would be renewed. We pray above all that the name of Jesus Christ would be raised high over the land and that the blood of Jesus Christ would wash clean over the land and that the spirit of Jesus Christ would fill the land. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us the strength to walk the land and share your word. The word that we open now and ask that you would guide us by in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I got my hair cut yesterday. Maybe you could tell. You're forgiven if you didn't notice, especially online. I don't know how easy it is to see. I'm very grateful that I have a wonderful barber. He's a terrific man. He has a uh, local little business right on my street, and I'm grateful to be able to go there, and I've been going there for years. My barber observes all the proper protocols at this time. There's a limited number of people that will be allowed. Uh, you have to wear a mask, and there's various different measures that are taken. One of them is, maybe you've seen this at some point during uh, this pandemic, if you have visited a beauty salon or barbershop or some similar kind of situation, that there's a little kind of booth, a little, a little shed that they set up. You know those three hinged, paneled, upright pieces? I don't know what the particular terminology is for that, but you come and you set it down and you can craft a little room for yourself. And of course, the purpose of that little booth is to give you a safe place to be cared for. In my case, it was to have my hair cut, which is a, which is a ministry. It's a service I'm receiving. And as they cut my hair, they have that booth around us so that there is some obstacle to infection. Now, you might say, well, that booth isn't going to do very much against a microscopic virus, and the point is well taken, but it is something that can change the airflow around you and apparently the droplets that are in the air, the moisture that can carry the virus. So it's an added measure of protection and privacy. It gives you uh, your own little space in which you are being cared for. Well, I, I was thinking about that as I was getting my hair cut, that here I am in the middle of this two-part series on the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, and I'm in a little booth being cared for uh, that very day, yesterday, as I was getting my hair cut. That's the idea of the shelter that is being celebrated in the Feast of Shelters. It is a place of protection, 
a canopy of covering. The tabernacle in the wilderness was not just their, their worship locus, the place where they worshiped. It was also the times of worship. You may remember that the Hebrew term for the tabernacle, moed, means meeting. It's a meeting place. It's a meeting time. The word refers both to the place and the time. And in fact, you and I can have something similar even in our word meeting today. You may have a meeting room, but you say, what time is the meeting? The meeting starts now. So there's both space and time wrapped up in the tabernacle. But it was more than just the ceremonial center of the lives of the the nation of Israel as they were in the wilderness coming out of uh, the days in Egypt and moving towards the days in the promised land. It was the house of God. It was the dwelling place of God. God came to minister to them and they ministered to his presence. That's really what covenant is about. It's God coming and saying, I want to make a pact with you. I want to reach out and lay hold of you. I want to heal you cleanse you, redeem you, inform you, feed you, guide you, care for you, be yours, and you be mine. That's the contract of the covenant. That's the meaning of Moed, a place and time in which we come face to face with God. And yet that's an awesome thing. What they understood well in those days that you and I may have lost a bit of is that you cannot come casually face to face with God. We think in these days that you can. People really don't generally have much of a notion of the, the awesomeness of the reality of encountering God's presence. But, but that reality is an overwhelming one. I had a dream last night. I was in the home that I grew up in. I suspect that that symbolizes something for me, at least. It's a place of trust, a place of warmth, a place of covering. It's the place where I first met the Lord, thanks to the ministry of my parents, the prayers that we prayed, the Bible that we read, the stories that were told to us about the people of God, the, the commitment to being a part of a church and attending that church and giving to that church, not only of our economic resource, but of our times and of our talent, and of our love, the community I experienced there. So that home for me is a place of blessing and covering. But even though it was the, the house that I was raised in, and I have not been back in in many, many decades, uh, I was um, myself at this age, I suppose, and I was teaching a class, much like I might be teaching in PSOM. It was a, in fact, it, it almost felt like it was a, a retreat or something, as though we were all staying in that house together. But in the moment of the dream, and you know how dreams are, things kind of come and go, and some of it you remember and some you don't. I remember this part, and I'm not making any claim about the dream. I'm not, I'm not claiming some kind of prophetic uh, visionary quality to it or anything like that. But it had meaning for me that I, I want to share with you, because I think it may have some meaning for you as well. So in the dream I was teaching and there were people in the class and quite a number of people, I can't remember all of them, but some of them were members of this church. Some of them were some of you. And I won't name all, I don't even know that I could name all, but I knew the people. And we were studying together the things of the Lord and it was richly rewarding and wonderful time um, as we did so. We were actually in an upper room of that house. 
That just dawns on me. That sounds somewhat biblical, doesn't it? We were all gathered together in one place. And it came to a point in the class where we were going to pray. And each one would lead out and pray just as the Spirit prompted them. And so I was listening to the prayers of others that were leading and I was adding my own to it, even in the dream. And then it came time for me to pray. And the whole process of hearing their prayers had developed in me a very keen sensitivity to the presence of the Lord in that dream. And I could feel it very profoundly. In fact, in waking, in real life, I've had moments like this and maybe you have too. I I hope you have. I invite you to seek an encounter with the Lord in which you feel and sense and are suffused by the reality of the awareness of his presence because it's an overwhelming experience to know that the Lord is with you, to sense him in you, to hear him speaking his word familiar and consistent with his scriptures and yet somehow very specifically applied to you. Something that you can hear in your mind the way you would hear your own voice. Something you can sense in your heart the way you would your own conscience. But you can also recognize as distinctly the Lord. And so as I came to pray in the dream, I was praying in that spirit and with that sensibility. And in the dream, I became overwhelmed with emotion. And it was clear that everyone in the room was as well. And it wasn't my prayer or theirs particularly, although prayer was the the enterprise that had brought us awake and alert to to this moment of God's presence so powerfully in our midst. Even though we couldn't see anything, even in the dream, I couldn't hear anything audibly in the dream of the Lord. But in my heart, in my emotions, and in my spiritual being, I was just absolutely radiant with the presence of God. I began to weep. The people in the class began to weep. And the the, the tears were tears of repentance. Tears of refreshing. Repentance is a gift of God. It's like the rain that renews the mountains. It's like the rain that that brings forth life from the soil. It's the rain that cleanses the street. It's rain in your heart that washes away all the works of evil. Of course, it's really the blood of Jesus Christ that does that. And the rain of our tears is a response of gratitude. So even though they were tears of repentance, they were equally and even more tears of joy. In fact, those two things really go together. Real repentance is not being burdened and bowed down into some horrific gesture of shame and guilt. That is not of the Lord, even though shame and guilt is not a wrong response, but it's of the enemy. That's the response of Satan that would try to imprison you in your sin. Whereas the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ is to deliver you from the prison of your sin. And so what you feel is relief, even though there comes with that also the recognition of just how wrong wrong is. Of just how sinful sin is. Of just how not God all of that is. And the way that we become aware of that is becoming aware of just how real and good God is. How truly holy he is. And then it's awesome to be in his presence because we recognize we don't deserve to be there. We could not earn the right to be there. And if it were not for God's grace, we could not survive there. When God appeared on the mountain of Sinai in the wilderness, He came with fire and flashing light 
The earth quaked, the winds blew, the voice of the Lord spoke, the entire nation heard it. And the Lord had said, don't come too close because you won't be able to survive. But that was a day before the arrival of Jesus Christ in the incarnation. Now the book of Hebrews says we can come boldly all the way to that very throne, to the Holy of Holies, into the very tabernacle of God's house, to be face to face with God, even as Moses was, not because we are more worthy, but because the one who is worthy has made us worthy through his life and his sacrifice. And he wants to live with us. And he wants us to live with him. That's what Sukkot is about. The Feast of Tabernacles is about God and his people living together as one. What a blessing. Now, it comes at a particular time in the year. It comes at the culmination of the year. You'll remember, and by the way, you can go online. It's the same, uh, well, some of the same teaching slides from last week. There are new ones, but among them is this same chart that we're going to look at in a moment. And you can download that. You can also download today's bulletin. And it's got some teaching outline points. So you can do that at a later point if you want to. Or if you're watching this as a recorder, you can pause and come back and check that out and uh, have those materials. They're given to you as a resource. MyPCF.org. The festivals were tied to the agricultural year. And so Uh, When we get to the fall festival, we're getting to the culmination of that year, the fulfillment of the harvest. The Lord said to us here at PCF that 2020 is a year of harvest, and we are coming to the culmination of that year. There is more harvest that God will have us do. In fact, remember what we saw out of Luke chapter 19 last week in in the parable of the Minas. The master said, occupy until I return. That's the message of the Messiah to us, is keep on keeping on for as long as you are here investing in the things of the Lord. So we will always be involved in the harvest until that harvest is complete. But what the Feast of Harvests reminds us every year in its cycle is that ultimately every harvest does have a conclusion. The feasts were also tied to the sacrificial system. There were particular sacrifices to be offered. So not only does it remind us of where we're at in the season, but it tells us what we are to do in that season. That's important. That's pivotal to today's message out of Luke chapter 21. But you can see it even in the parable of the Minas from last week. The master was saying, I'm going and I'm going to be gone for a while, but I am going to return. And when I return, I'm going to see what you've done in the season of time while I was gone. So there are things that you and I are called to give things that you and I are called to do, ways that you and I are called to invest ourselves as living sacrifices because there is a messianic promise and each of the feasts reveals that as well. Not only do they look back to what God has already done, the Passover deliverance out of uh, um, enslavement in Egypt, which relates to the Passover when the angel of death passed over the Israelites but brought judgment upon the Egyptians. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, as they left so quickly that they didn't have time to add yeast to their bread. The Feast of First Fruits, the very first harvest. And in fact, not only is there uh, the recognition in this event of uh, the Lord arriving, as I just described, on the Mount Sinai to give his word, the beginning of a covenant with them, or the beginning of a national covenant, I should say, uh, the initiation of it, let's put it that way. It began Uh, with God's promise to Abraham, but it gets initiated nationally at Mount Sinai under Moses. 
But there's also a reminder from the days of Joshua how they ate of the first fruits of the land when they finally entered into the promise. These are the spring festivals. In the summer, Pentecost, seven sets of seven. Seven weeks of seven days is 49 days. And on the 50th day, there's the beginning of the grain harvest. And Pentecost celebrates that, that day, 50 weeks following the first fruits, that shows the cycle of the seasons progressing, but also remembers God's arrival on the mountain, God's giving of his word, and anticipates a messianic hope, the giving of the spirit of Jesus Christ on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, which also is that same festival. But we put our focus in this message on these fall feasts, and particularly the final feast of the fall, the tabernacles. Passover, Pentecost, and, and the tabernacles are the three times every year in which all of Israel was to come to Jerusalem to the temple. They were to come to the place where God was tabernacled with his people. And so the fall festival particularly was one in which there was the reminder that God dwells with us and we dwell with God by God's grace. Now each of these, as I said, has a parallel to the life of Jesus. Jesus went to the cross on the Passover. In the grave during the time of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the yeast of the bread being symbolic of sin, a bread without yeast is like a, a body without sin. And that body was Christ's who lay in the tomb for you and I so that you and I could become part of his body in these days and filled with his spirit. He rose from the tomb on the day of firstfruits as a firstfruit to show us that God's resurrection power is at work in Jesus Christ and therefore you can experience that resurrection power at work in you as well. But Jesus said, wait, wait for the Spirit, the promise of the Father to arrive upon you in order to fulfill the mission of fruitfulness, the harvest mission that he has given you. And on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit fell in Acts chapter 2. Now in the fall feasts, we are looking forward. So whereas these were in the future for the days of Moses, but now have been completed, these remain future fulfillments for us. We are still looking towards the day of trumpets which not only sounded, for instance, Israel's victory over Jericho through worship in the days of Joshua, but also the arrival of Jesus Christ in his return. We are told that a trump shall sound and that at that sounding, there will be a recognition of the coming of Christ in the clouds. There's a final judgment that is symbolized in the day of atonement. And then there's a new creation, a dwelling place of God and humanity that is symbolized in the tabernacles. That's why we continue to look at these feasts, not only because they point back to what God has done and remind us of his glorious faithfulness, not only because they connect to Christ and therefore have a, a messianic message to deliver to us, but also because they, they help us to look forward, to look up to the things of the Lord and to remain alert to the signs of the times. Now, in Luke chapter 21, Jesus is talking about precisely that, the signs of the times. He is talking about how people can recognize in what is to come, in the midst of very challenging circumstances, the reality of the mission of the Lord for them. How they can recognize what the season really is and what they're supposed to be doing in it. That's what the feasts are about, right? 
The feasts are about focusing us on God, recognizing the season, anticipating the, the, the action that God is calling us to based on the fidelity of what God has already done and said. The context of Luke chapter 1 comes as Jesus is really arriving at the end of his three and a half year teaching ministry that has taken him from Galilee in the north through Judea and he is pressing on into Jerusalem for his final week. Jesus knows that he's coming to the culmination of his harvest. Jesus knows that he's the first fruit. Jesus knows that unless a grain of wheat dies and falls into the ground, it won't produce that fruit. He knows that the cross, which is a tree of death, will become a tree of life by the virtue of God's grace. And Jesus knows that it's to the cross that he is called. But Jesus also knows that he's calling all of us to our cross as well. That Jesus says, whoever would follow me, pick up their cross and come to that same place of death to yourself and life in God. So his teaching is focused on a purpose. Will you say that word out loud where you are? Purpose. It's purpose that drives Jesus, the purpose of the Lord, the will of the Father. And in fact, when we looked at the parable of the Minas, there was purpose in that. Jesus taught that parable because he was about to enter into Jerusalem and the expectation of the crowds was intense about him establishing an earthly kingdom. They were looking to elect Jesus, if you will, to be the leader of the land, the crowds that were for him. And of course, the leaders of the land that were already in place were not pleased about that. So they were looking to wipe him out, get him out of the equation. The, those leaders were jealous and distrustful of Jesus. The crowds were zealous and excited about Jesus. But in a sense, both of them were equally wrong about Jesus. Because Jesus wasn't coming in that moment to establish an earthly political kingdom. That's not to say that God's word doesn't indicate that there will be the establishment of an earthly kingdom under Christ. In fact, there already has been, but it will manifest in all ways. But what Jesus knew was that the purpose of his moment was to show the world, the cross, and him on it. Jesus said the Son of Man must be lifted up so that all who would look on him would be healed, saved. So he told the parable of the Minas to help them understand the purpose they had in establishing the kingdom, which is that while you don't see the master present visibly, nevertheless, you have a mission from the master, and you have a resource from the master, and you have a job to do, a role to play, a prayer to pray, an investment to make. So coming away from last week's message, I want to take um, a, a quick look at the reminders because they kind of speak to um, the culmination of the teaching today. We are to await the master's return. He will come. We are to invest the master's gift because we have a mission. And we are to expect the master's blessing. There's a reward that will come to the faithful. And there's a judgment that will come to the disobedient. That just grates against our contemporary ears, because I guess we live in an era which people just can't abide the notion of judgment. It seems to really, really rail against us, or we rail against it. And I suppose that as the scripture says, it must obviously be true that nobody likes discipline. But the judgment of the Lord now 
is a discipline that can enable us to be prepared for the reward that will come. But if we won't receive his, his discipline now, we will receive his wrath later. Because the wrath comes against what is wrong. And if what is wrong is in us, then the wrath comes against us. God wants to remove what is wrong in us. And he does so by his grace. But if we resist it, he doesn't force it. Because God will not make someone love him. But God will give love to those who receive him. So there's a reward for the faithful, but a judgment for the disobedient. Now, in Luke chapter 21, Jesus has already taught that tale. So those lessons are living in the minds of those who are listening to him, if they're listening closely. Now he's actually arrived in Jerusalem, and it's the week that is leading up to Passover, that spring feast. And he's teaching in the temple every day, praying in the temple every day. I wonder if when Jesus gathered and taught and prayed, there wasn't sometimes that extraordinary outpour of emotion. There wasn't at times that sense, even like in my dream last night, of the amazing presence of God. And that drew people into relationship. But there were also people who resisted and rejected. Tensions were rising in the city. The people that were looking for Jesus to make a military or political revolt were pushing, pushing harder and harder for that. The religious leaders were growing more gravely concerned about riots and instability. The Romans, perplexed by these foreign uh, feasts and these foreign faiths, were nevertheless disturbed at how um, stirred up the people were, and it was unstable times. Maybe you and I can relate. Now, at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus notices there's a woman coming into the temple, which is the tabernacling place of God, and she gives a very small offering, just two tiny coins, like two pennies. There's all these rich dudes putting lots and lots into the plate, but this woman puts in very little, and yet Jesus honors her for all time. Here, 2,000 years later, we're still talking about the widow's might, the, the power of what she put in, even though might there refers to, uh, again, another passage that is talking about a currency of coin. But it's interesting, isn't it, that just a little bit later from the parable of the minas, we see this woman investing, and it's small, like a seed. It's tiny, but oh, how it draws the eye of God and the glory of the master who says that is well invested. She put in all she had. You know what she put in was more than the coins. She put in her trust. That's food for this week. That's, that's the money to patch the hole in the little hut she lives in. That's the tax money, maybe. Now, I don't want to encourage irresponsibility. I, I should hasten to say that you want to be wise in how you steward what you are given. And uh, the Lord expects us to pay our debts and to pay our due. Even Jesus paid taxes, even when he said to Peter, well, it's not really expected of us. But remember, the Lord provided that tax in the mouth of a fish. So that's another story. You can look it up if you want. But the point is this. The widow trusted God, and she showed that trust with a material gift. I want to thank you again for your giving to PCF. And I want to remind you that it's not the amount that you give. It's why you give. It's how you give. It's to whom you give. You give because you trust God. You give joyfully, each one purposing in their own heart what they will give and then giving with a grateful heart. That's, that's why. That's how. And to whom you give. 
It's not me, although I benefit from it, and so does my family. It's not this building, although this building is maintained by what you give. It's not necessarily the programs and projects that we uh, activate, but those programs and projects cannot advance without material resource and the people to serve them. But what you are giving to, who you are giving to, is God. And when you give to God, <laughs> you've invested wisely. God says when you give to the poor, you're giving to him, and you'll get a return on your investment. When you give to those in need, you're giving to God. So give all that you have with all that you've got to everything that God calls you to. That's a part of the preparation for what is to come. That's the investment wisely in the season that is. But Jesus is also talking about what is to come. Now, there's this this interest at the time. What's going to happen? When is the kingdom going to be established? And how is that going to be done? And Jesus is very aware that that conversation is going on constantly all the time. One of these days while they are in the temple, the uh, disciples are admiring the beauty of the temple. But Jesus says, you know, this great grand building that you're so impressed by, the time is going to come when there's not one stone left on another. And then he begins to foretell the signs of tribulation. It's a passage that you'll find in verses 7 through 36 of Luke chapter 21. We're not going to have time to read it together, but I would like you to read it this week. In fact, read it today if you can. It's not that long. Read through it. You can download these slides and the text is actually there. You can read it directly or you can get your own Bible or read it online and find the, the, the specific detail of this passage. It's also paralleled in Matthew chapter 24 and Mark 13. These are all similar passages where Jesus talks about the destruction of Jerusalem that will come, which, by the way, occurred about 35, 40 years later in uh, A.D. 70 when Rome actually did destroy the temple, not one stone left on another. In fact, all that remains even to this day is a single foundational wall on the western side of the, of the campus, which is known as the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall. But no actual component part of the visible temple remains or did after AD 70. And not only was the temple destroyed, but the city was sacked and probably um, something on the order of a holocaust of hundreds of thousands, perhaps as many as a million deaths, an extraordinary extermination, a virtual genocide was intended. The miracle is that the Jewish people were not snuffed out. The miracle was that God still protected his covenant people, and yet it was a devastating time. But... Jesus is also talking about the persecutions and problems that his people will face throughout time, times of great hardship that is to come. Now, I want to just focus on a couple of things before we come to the conclusion in the next few minutes. Jesus describes the things that you and I will see. One of them is that there will be people saying, I've got the answer. People basically saying, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one that you should follow. I'm, I'm God's chosen. I'm God's elect. This may be people literally passing themselves off as the second coming, which happens. There are already people that have done that. In fact, sadly, there are even thousands of people, tens of thousands of people in this way of such heresy and falsehood. Let me assure you that what Jesus said can be trusted. When the coming of Christ is, uh, recurs, when the second coming of Christ comes, it will not be subject to debate. There will be no denying it. That's why you and I want to be ready. 
because that's not going to be the time to align yourself with him if you haven't already. You won't be able to identify with him then if you're not willing to identify with him now. You might say, well, that doesn't seem fair. But, you know, it's just like anything. There's a process. Let's take this agricultural model. Let's talk about a harvest. If you come to the harvest at the end and what you have there to harvest is corn and and carrots, you can't suddenly say, I want it to be tomatoes. The time for that was back when you were sowing the seed. Maybe somewhere along the way, as the harvest was progressing, you could recognize, I don't want this weed. I want the wheat. I don't want the tear. I want the wheat. I don't want the thing that will be wasted and lost. I want the thing that is gloriously good. But the time for that is a season. And the season has an end. You can't be a weed your whole life and suddenly, when Jesus is in the sky, you say, I want to be wheat. You can't be rotten and suddenly want to be good. You have to be made good by God. Now, God will make anyone good and everyone good who will allow God to be God in their lives. But if you and I are looking to something else, that's a different God. That's a different idol. And Jesus says, watch out for people who claim to be me or on my behalf, but don't have my fruit. You'll know them by their fruits. Who don't speak my word, who aren't in accord with what I say. Then he says there's other things. When you hear of wars, uprisings, that's social unrest, don't be frightened. These things have to happen first, and then there's an end that will come. The end there is a goal, not just an end in time, but there's a purpose that will be fulfilled. Literally, in the Greek, the term is not just about a chronological conclusion of a series of time, but even more specifically, it is about the fulfillment of a plan, the fulfillment of a purpose. Jesus says there will be nation rising against nation, wars and rumors of wars. There will be great earthquakes. There will be famines. Friends, there will be pestilence. There will be COVID and whatever might follow COVID. In other words, this is not unknown that such things would come. But what Jesus is saying in this instance is not those are the things that mean that it's done. But rather, those are the things that come first. He says these things happen. In various places, fearful events, signs in the heavenlies. And before all of this, they'll seize you and persecute you. So that's really part of the primary focus here is that Jesus is preparing his people to deal with the persecution that comes. And he says, don't worry about it. Don't be afraid because I'm going to equip you. I'm going to resource you. So that when you are brought before courts and councils, when you are pulled before the mob or the crowd, I'll give you the words to say. And no one will be able to, de- to deny the power of the words of the Spirit. It doesn't mean that nothing bad will happen to you. He was with Stephen, and Stephen was in the Spirit, and they stoned Stephen to death. But do you know what Stephen did? He looked up and he said, I see you, Christ Jesus, my Lord. And he says, forgive them. Don't hold this charge against them. The very character of Christ coming out of him. And he goes to be with the Lord. Friends, that's not a loss. That's not a failure. That's a victory. That's a harvest. In fact, one of the people that stands there and watches him is a man named Saul. And it takes a while. But God God intersects Saul's path. And part of the fruit of Stephen's testimony is the New Testament letters of Paul 
a man who was against God even when he thought he was for him, but who encountered the Spirit of God and the resurrected Christ, and through that testimony and witness was transformed. The Lord will give you his Spirit, his wisdom, and his witness also. But don't be surprised to be betrayed, brother against brother, parents against children, children against parents. Some of you will be put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. Boy, not a great appeal, right? But not a hair of your head will perish. Wait a minute. He says some of you will be killed, but not a hair of your head will perish. He's talking about in the kingdom. Even if you lose your life here, you have not lost your life if your life is in the Lord. But if you gain the whole world here, but your life is not in the Lord, what does it profit you to gain the whole world and lose your soul? So stand firm on the things of the Lord and you will win your life. Jesus then describes the destruction of Jerusalem and he comes to a culminating point of the passage. There'll be signs in the sun, the moon, the stars. There'll be anguish among the nations. There'll be perplexity at the roaring and the tossing of the sea. Let those who have ears to hear, hear. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Jesus tells them a parable about how you can tell that the season of harvest fruitfulness is coming for the fig tree when you see its leaves in bloom. And he's saying, look for these things and recognize the reality that the harvest is coming. The point in these days is not to say the world's about over, the world's about over, and either hang our head in gloom and doom or dance a jig as though there's something for us to be happy about people being in peril or things coming to a cataclysmic conclusion. That's not the point. While I was getting my hair cut yesterday, the old REM song was playing. It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. I thought, here I am in my tabernacle, and the song playing over me is, it's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. And in a way, that's a very uh, biblical statement. It's saying, I'm housed in the house of the Lord. I'm covered by the canopy of Christ. I'm among the redeemed, and so I'm not afraid. But heaven forbid that we should turn that attitude into some kind of dismissive disdain for people around us. Or even worse, that we should rub our hands in glee and, and, and chortle about how everyone else can go to hell in a handbasket, but I'm going to be raptured away with Christ. I talked with a friend of mine who's not a Christian, um, but who is, I think, seeking the things of the Lord. Someone I've known for a long time and been sharing with them about the Lord for a long time. And they were saying, you know, I see people in these days, Christians, who seem like they're almost eager or happy for the world to be destroyed because, you know, it's the second coming. And there is some misunderstanding in that about what we really believe. But there's also a recognition of that, of the way some Christians really do behave. And that is not of the Lord. The attitude that Jesus inculcates in us is not glee at the destruction of the world, but a passionate desire to see the world saved. Jesus came to the world. That's the tabernacle he dwelt in, the same world that you and I live in, the same body that we have. He had that kind of human body. And Jesus is telling us these things, not so that we would somehow just check out, but rather that we would tune in and invest whatever we have, even if it's just a little, 
invested into the things of the Lord that would provide for others, that would testify to his truth, that would bear witness to his reality, that would pray and intercede. Because what's coming is not easy. But beyond that, there is glory. And that's part of the promise too. And part of the reason why we need to be careful that our own hearts don't get weighted down with the things of the world. In this season, I'm coming to the conclusion. Give me another few minutes here. There's three things that could happen. Where we are at right now, this 2020 year when I'm preaching, feels like a tough time. I think tougher times are ahead. I think this sermon of Jesus's says tougher times are ahead. There are things in there we can recognize. Wars, rumors of wars, check, check, check. Pandemic, check. People um, fighting against one another, check. And, and, and difficulty in the street, check. Financial hardship, check. Signs in the heavens, well, maybe a few, but the seas roaring and foaming, people being terrified by what they see in the sky, we haven't seen that yet. And yet, everything else has come down the pike. There will be that too. In our lifetime, I have no idea. I truly have no idea. Could be tomorrow, could be 20,000 years from now. And I don't know. And what the Lord basically has told me is, that doesn't matter. You say, but this whole thing is about knowing the signs of the times. The signs of the times you're in. It's about being ready for what comes next when you recognize you don't know what comes next. So the point is to be living today in preparation for that time to come. You say, well, what if I live my whole life that way and it is 20,000 years off? Well, friend, you're going to Jesus a lot sooner than that. Your life on this world will end sooner than that, even if this world doesn't end sooner. In other words, we're all going to come face to face with Jesus Christ sooner than we might realize. And when we are standing there, it will be the time for taking account. That's why we want to take account now. That's why Jesus says, be careful now. Check your heart now. Don't give in to drunkenness. Don't give in to anxieties. Don't give in to anger. Don't get caught up in greed. Don't get caught up in the works of darkness. Don't get caught up in the things of the world, but care about the world. Instead of getting caught up in the world, go and invest in the salvation of the world by sowing the seed of God's word and sharing the truth of his spirit. And be on watch and pray so that you'll be prepared for things that you wouldn't be prepared for otherwise. I thank God for passages like these because they taught me to pray in such a way that I don't think I could have handled 2020 if I hadn't been praying the way I was praying in 2019. And that's, not, that's no credit to me. That is entirely the work of God. And I mean, I had my struggles this year too, and I'll have my struggles next year if, if I'm around next year, right? The point is, to pray in a way in which we ask the Lord to prepare us for the day that we are in and the day that is to come so that we can stand on the day of the Lord. Concluding remarks. Don't be deceived in this season. This is a season in which you and I sheltered in place, but it's a time when we need to inhabit his grace. We're not just hiding out and we're not running away. We are stepping in to the holy of God's holies. We are inviting in the fullness of God's grace. And we are depending on the truth of God's discernment and discretion. So that we wouldn't be deceived by the things that are going on around us. There's a lot to deceive right now. There's a lot that causes fear. 
don't be afraid. Not just because you, you know, gear yourself up on some kind of artificial macho, I'm not scared of anything. I ain't afraid of no ghost. Well, be afraid of the Holy Ghost. Bow down and let him come over you. Have a holy fear of God so that you needn't have no fear of anything else. Because when you and I are walking in the fear and admonition of the Lord, we can face whatever God enables us to face, whatever he calls us to face. I'm not saying it'll be easy. I'm saying we'll be ready because of him. But don't go to sleep. So I said there's three things that could happen right now. Things could continue in the same pattern, just droning on. And that's wearying enough. You can see people just feeling like the wheels are coming off, the gears are falling off now because I'm just tired of this, right? I mean, even me saying, I'm, I miss having you here. It's just hard to sustain this way. And in that, you can just kind of go into a drudgery, a kind of spiritual sluggishness. Wake up out of that. These are powerful, potent times, and they have a purpose. Don't, don't, don't just ignore the opportunities right now. Don't just be putting one foot in front of the other and say, well, that's all I can do. Well, then fine. Do that, but ask the Lord to ignite the flame and fire of his passion in you for what this season really is. Because if you'll look around at the signs of our times, what you and I should recognize is this is a time to get ready for God and get people ready for God. Don't go to sleep. Don't get drunk in the things of the world and pass out. I saw a man passed out on the street during my nightly walk a couple of weeks ago. A young man, probably 30 years old, utterly passed out and totally alone on the sidewalk. I thought he was dead, actually, when I first saw him. I had to shout loudly to wake him up. I ended up uh, helping him walk back to his home. He had gone out drinking, apparently, and gotten so drunk that, that, that he had passed out on the street. But, you know, I think... And I've never seen that in my neighborhood before, but I think these are days when people are doing desperate things. But don't give yourself over to that. Give yourself over to the Spirit. Allow the Spirit to infuse and fill you with hope and alertness, joy and awakeness. In order not to be deceived, we need to know who the Lord is. I invite you to get these slides and look up the additional verses, or in the bulletin, you'll have it too. John 10, Jesus talks about, my sheep know my voice. Don't be afraid because the Holy Spirit is available for you. The Holy Spirit is there to lead and guide you. Jesus was talking about that in Luke 21, but he mentions it in Luke 12 and John 15, John 16. Jesus says, I'll give you the helper. Stay alert to the signs of the times. Remember that when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, on the night when he was going to the cross, the, the night before, he was saying to the disciples, couldn't you stay awake with me just one hour? But they kept going to sleep. But what Jesus knew was he knew where he was going. He knew his purpose. He had shared it with them, but they hadn't really received it. But Jesus believed it. And because of it, he was prepared to walk the path that he walked for you and I. And he calls us to follow him in that path to the cross. The Feast of Booths is about sheltering in the place of God's provision and strength, about inhabiting the grace that he provides for all times and all seasons. Every moment of our lives is known by God. Every season that we are in has a purpose. God has a plan 
that includes it all. And he is able to work all things together for good to those who love him and are known by him, who know him and meet with him, who worship him and belong to him. So worship his face. Shelter in his place. Inhabit his grace and let his grace inhabit you and worship his face. Glory in his coming. Glory in who he is, in what he says, in what he does. Let your face shine with the glory of his face and you'll be a witness to the whole human race of the glory of God's face. Moses had a veil over his face because the people couldn't bear the light. But we with unveiled faces today reveal the truth of who Jesus Christ is. He is the master. He has given of his spirit. He is coming back and he comes with a reward and with a judgment. Choose the reward. Choose Christ and then serve his purpose in your life. Lord, we thank you that our lives belong to you and our times are in your hands. We pray that you would attune us to the signs of the times and the season that we are in. We pray that you would use us for the fulfillment of a harvest and the blessing of our world. We pray that you would sustain us. I pray right now for my brethren, Lord. The Lord grants to you the grace to sustain. As many as will receive and believe, he gives unto you courage and strength, physical health, stamina, energy, a renewal of your heart. He gives love to you in place of hatred. He gives patience in place of impatience. He gives encouragement in place of criticism. He gives grace in place of judgment. He gives you strength to sustain and to face rejection. And for any that are called even to the place of giving their life, which is all of us really, he gives the strength to give it and the promise that you will live it in the kingdom forever. There are those right now who are feeling separated from God by guilt, by shame, maybe by anger. You, you, you know, you just, why not just be honest about that right now? You're, you're feeling resentful of God. You're frustrated with God. Take the mask off. He already knows. And he's not running away from it. He's not offended. And, and believe me, um, if it comes to a wrestling match between you and him, he wins, but you win when he wins. Just ask Jacob. Take a look at it, Genesis 34. But it's time to get honest with God that you're feeling frustrated with him. Share that. Repent of it. Acknowledge it. Maybe you've got a beef with him. All right, take it to him. Let him take to you his heart and his mind on the matter. Because I promise you what you'll find is that God's got more wisdom than you. God's got more love than you. God's got more love for you. And he wants to renew you. If you're feeling separated by your sin, bring your sin to him. You're ashamed? Put the shame at his altar. Put it at his feet. And let him wash you 
with the cleansing power of his love. Lord, thank you that you would live within our hearts. We invite you once again. Just say that. Lord Jesus, I invite you into my heart. Cleanse my heart of all sin. Fill my heart with all your hope. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Connect me with your body. Fill me with your word. Keep me on your path. Show me the way and give me the grace and the strength to follow it. And I will do it, Lord, by your grace. Prepare me for hard times ahead and keep me focused on your joy. In Jesus' name. The two things that, that could happen other than just continuing the same, things could get a lot worse or things could get a lot better. Either way, you could lose your focus on the Lord. When things get worse, you could give up hope. When things get better, you could give up looking. So remember the words of the Lord. Whether things stay the same or get worse or get better, keep your eye above on Christ. Keep looking up. Stay alert. Stay attuned. And stay aligned with the Lord. Because God is coming to live with you. Hallelujah. God bless you, church.